Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance being joined remotely. How's it going, Lance? It is going very well. How are you, Tim? I'm doing pretty well. I can't wait to hear about the haunted house you just moved into. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not going to say it's haunted yet. We did move over the weekend. We moved out of the city. We were in a little little town that's about 20 minutes from Boston. The house is very historic. It's from 1830. And uh, there's a lot of information that we found inside the house, a lot of historical documents. Super fascinating. We'll We'll do a whole thing about it hopefully soon. I am not committing 100% to the hauntings, but there have been a couple of uh, moments where, uh, you know, it just makes it kind of frown and scratch your head and say, that's interesting. I should keep an open mind here. <laughs> All right. Well, we will get into that on our Patreon feed. You can check that out at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. But Lance, today's interview, we talk with a couple of true crime podcasters guy named Javier and a guy named John. They do the Pretend Podcast and the Twisted Podcast, and they've come together to do a new show, an investigative podcast called Criminal Conduct, and they are discussing the mysterious death of Michelle O'Connell. Yes, Michelle O'Connell was shot to death on September 2nd, 2010. She had an argument with her boyfriend, who was a St. John's Sheriff's Office deputy, guy's name is jeremy banks and they go into some pretty uh, intense detail with their investigation into it there's a lot of details in in this case that they cover including a a private citizen who was looking into uh, michelle's murder named eli Washtalk, and and this person ends up being murdered as well so they get into that case was it connected and it just keeps unraveling and and unfolding in front of them it's a crazy case and and a great piece of investigation by these two all right everybody we hope you enjoy this interview with javier and john and check out criminal conduct thanks for listening Welcome to Crawl Space. We are being joined now by Javier and John of the Criminal Conduct Podcast. What's up, fellas? Hey, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? Oh, we're we're doing well. We're hanging in here the best we can in uh, light of the uh, certain pandemic that has hit the uh, hit the world. So, yeah, we just want to really thank you for taking the time out of your day and and out of your quarantine to uh, join us to talk about this. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to release a podcast. It'll definitely answer the question whether people listen to more to podcasts more in the car or at home. So, right, right. And, uh, there's a lot of people who are or who are cooking now. I mean, there you know people have been you, know, you can't go out to eat anymore. So all of a sudden, your your spare time that you used in a uh, social environment has now been limited to your you know your four walls. So no better time to listen to your show either. Yeah. Well, fellas. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the podcast and the case. I'll let John start because he has a cooler background than I do. (laughs) Thank you, Javier. But uh, yeah, both of us already had our own podcast. So I've got uh, my own podcast called Twisted Podcast. It's a true crime podcast. I put out uh, two episodes a month. And uh, I'm a private investigator licensed here in North Carolina. And in a previous career, I worked as an agent for the U.S. Secret Service. And... uh and I, I was a journalism background, so John and I have that yin and yang thing where he's the law enforcement side, and I'm the old journalist asking questions. That is, uh, that is quite a that's quite a dynamic that the two of you have. You are a former Secret Service 
agent. I'm assuming you're you're talking about for the president of the United States and not for um well, I don't know. Are were you for the president or were you for uh like the vice president or the first lady or does it change? So I worked in the Washington field office. So we pri- like in a uh, field office, you're primarily tasked with uh criminal investigations, so counterfeiting, white collar crimes, that kind of thing, but you also support all the details. So I supported the president, vice president, first lady, foreign heads of state uh, many times across my four and a half years in the service. Wow. <laughs> cool. And and I apologize, but for the listeners, um, I don't want you to think that uh, your your other show isn't listened on by Crawl Space. But for the listeners out there who haven't heard your other podcast, is that true crime based on your experience in uh, in in the Secret Service world, uh, no, I mean I would say that it that my experiences are reflected in my opinions and analysis. But it I look I delve into just true crime cases, uh, primarily cases that are not new, just because I like cases that uh, have kind of stood the test of time and that more facts come out the further you go into the future away from a case. So uh, there some of them are famous, some of them are not, and um, I do analysis and I do interviews as well. Very cool. And what about you, Javier? My uh, background, like I said, comes from broadcast journalism. I, I did that for a long time. But, you know, journalism is such a um, it, it's not a very rewarding field. You have to work a lot of long hours for very little pay and sit in a lot of city council meetings. So after a while, I decided to get like, you know, a better paying job. But I, I missed it. Right. I missed telling stories, kind of getting into trouble, you know, um, satisfying that curiosity. And I started a podcast about three years ago called Pretend, and and it's a storytelling podcast. So it kind of brings together all my talents, like the storytelling, the news, the creativity. And John and I, we met at a meetup for podcasters, and we're we're actually one of the only few true crime podcasters at that meetup. And we've always wanted to work on something together, and this was it. This was supposed to be a really small, light project that we could tackle on the side that has now consumed our lives for like the past seven or eight months. Oh, man. Do you uh, find that is the case with a lot of the stories that you get yourself involved in that you think that it's going to be this sort of light um, topic that you can look at, you know, on a Sunday night when you're not doing anything else and you can just relax to and then you realize six months later that you're so immersed in it and and now you're border you know you border on obsessive yeah that happens almost every time like in pretend my other podcast i was supposed to do an one episode about prank callers and it turned into a whole season worth of prank call episodes and it's just because you go down these rabbit holes you know and 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 you just don't know how to get out of it you know and the same yeah. thing happened with with criminal conduct this story has so much depth and so many layers that john and i are currently i mean we put out that podcast today while this episode's being recorded we put it out today and we're still digging in i mean and we've been working on this for months yeah it is a uh... An incredibly fascinating case. And before we get into the actual uh, details of the case, you said that you and John met at a meetup and you wanted to work together on something uh, since that time, you know, since the moment you met. Uh, how did you decide on this case? And uh, yeah, just give us some a little bit of the details on, on how that came about between the two of you. Yeah, I think that um, the case was was a tough decision because we were trying to balance. We wanted a case that where we could find new information but also a case that had enough information out there or people we had access to that we could get that information. 
So, it, it, you know, we looked at a number of things just from a practical standpoint and then <clears throat> also looking into a case that was compelling. And this case is absolutely compelling on so many levels that, that really drew us in. But um, we kind of debated on a number of other cases that we probably are going to pursue possibly in seasons two or three. But um, I think it was a culmination of things. But this case spoke to us uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And, uh, I think one of them primarily is the fact that when we were looking into this case, we found out that someone previous to us that was looking into this case had been murdered. So that certainly piqued our interest as well. Yeah. Okay. We will get there. Um, because that's fascinating, but, uh, yeah. So tell us about the, the death of Michelle O'Connell. Michelle O'Connell died on September 2nd, 2010, and she was dating a St. John's County deputy sheriff at the time. And they broke up that evening and she was shot with his firearm and he called 911 and it was initially reported as a suicide. Uh, and so that kind of set the narrative because the people that were responding to the 911 call were uh, friends and coworkers of her boyfriend, Jeremy Banks. Uh, but then there were some things at the scene and some questions by the family later that made people think, well, maybe this wasn't a suicide. Maybe it was a homicide, such as the gun was found by her left hand and she was right handed. Uh, she had a young daughter. No one thought that she would kill herself with having a daughter. And those types of things just kind of brought intrigue into the case. And then there's many other things that cascaded out of that as far as the, uh, the ensuing investigations and problems that came up around this case. You start your show off with the 911 call that he made. Uh, what do you make of that just in your in both of your professional uh, opinions? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we started with the 911 call because this is not an ordinary 911 call. John, you know, he, he's listened to hundreds of 911 calls. I've listened to a lot of 911 calls. No one, we've never heard one like this. And it was the most compelling place to start the story, I think. Because regardless of whether Michelle O'Connell was killed from a homicide or died from a suicide that was a very bizarre way to act on a call, especially from her boyfriend, who is a sheriff's deputy. You know, he, he knows the other people on the other end of that call. So he he's using deception, acting like, you know, he's trying to mask who he really is. And then halfway through the call, he says, OK, OK, hang on. Let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the truth. I'm Jeremy Banks. I work with you all. Come up, get somebody here now. And. It, it was just such a, a dramatic shift and transition that I think that that single-handedly is what makes people um, wonder whether there was something nefarious going on with this case. Yeah, I don't want to read too much into it, but during that call, he almost sounds a bit offended that he's mistaken for a, a woman. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think he was incredibly... Uh offended and felt disrespected that they were not treating him uh, in the way that he wanted to be treated. Yeah, he also said, I think she killed herself at first, which I thought was weird. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a, a give or a tell into his mind uh, when he says something like that. When, when people, uh, a lot of times when people are deceptive, they will use language that is not strong. Like uh, they'll say, you know, a kid will say, well, I, I kind of washed the uh, car or I, I, I may have vacuumed the house. They, they can't commit to it because there's that indecision within their mind. They know what they're saying is not true. And there's a lot of things on this call 
where it appears that that Jeremy has some internal grapplings with what he's saying versus what he knows. Okay, so so then I, I'm sure the uh, the county sheriff department they figured out the truth, and uh, Jeremy Banks is uh, in jail now. Show over. <laughs> Actually, that's that's the crazy part. So we're now in 2010. This took place in 2000. You know, um, sorry, it, it, this took place in 2010. We're now in 2020, and Jeremy Banks still has a badge. He still has a gun, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. Uh, then and now but yeah he's currently an officer for a deputy sheriff for the st john's county sheriff's office he's still he's still an active member of that sheriff's department yes was there testing on the angle of the gunshot or any any like forensic testing in in that way uh yes not by the st john's sheriff's office but Mm. Under a later investigation when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement took over and, and during the autopsy, they looked at a number of things like that. Yeah, but but what's surprising about this and we're, we're going to obviously get to the forensic questions, you know, in, the, in future episodes. But it took four months for a lot of that evidence to actually be tested and it, the DNA on the gun. And, and a lot of that evidence wasn't tested for another four months until state investigators show up. So it just kind of tells you how this scene was treated. I think, you know, the deputy sheriffs uh, and the detectives showed up and Jeremy says it was a suicide and they kind of treated it that way. It's almost like they turned off their their detective mind off because they were told it was a suicide and they treated it that way. Now, did Michelle have any indication or a previous history of depression or had she attempted suicide in the past and or did they have a bad relationship yeah i think uh so a lot of that when you go back after the fact there you know everything is called into question but she certainly was telling people that she was stressed she said that she was very much uh, upset but uh, the indications are that that stress and that uh, her being upset was directed at her relationship with jeremy banks but nothing that was indicative of her looking for ways to end her life. There's not anything, in my opinion, that's clear-cut, but there certainly were some text messages that she sent prior to her death that could be interpreted either as uh, pre-suicidal or that she felt that there was something horrific coming her way. Uh, so there's certainly, there are, there, a case could be made for uh, a despondent state of mind with, with Michelle O'Connell. I think that's a f- fair assessment. Okay, I don't want to give too much away for uh, for the listeners, um, but the text messages, can you give a little example of what you're talking about there? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I would most say per, uh, like word for word, but she's saying things along basically like take care of her daughter, make sure her daughter's safe. Yeah, Lexi, never forget. Yeah. You know, her daughter's name is Lexi, and she said, never forget. You know, things like that. But she also had plans to meet with her friends afterwards too so even today i don't want anybody to like listen to this show and be like hey javier and john think this is a a homicide (laughs) and we're trying to prove it's a homicide we're not even today uh, john and i wrestle with the idea of could she have committed suicide because some days it seems like all the evidence points that way and then you start looking at different evidence and then it changes your perspective but honestly it goes back and forth with us, even still. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a police officer. I don't think anyone on these airwaves, uh, you know, wants to be disrespectful to law enforcement in any way. This is kind of a crazy thing uh, that you're saying and, and that, that uh, you know, it, or I, I should say is not a crazy thing you're saying. But if this was really a murder, this is a crazy situation. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and But regardless of what happened... I think one of the, I mean, for me, there's a couple of takeaways. One is that uh, I think Javier and I would just, we want people to think about this case and not just come to the most obvious conclusion immediately and think that's what happened. Uh, and the other facet is that uh, people do things for a lot of reasons. So there were decisions made in investigations that may look really ominous from the outside, but may have good reasons behind them. And that not everyone involved in this case was doing terrible things, though it may look that way from the outside. So I think this case is is very complicated. And I think that hopefully by the end of the series, people have appreciation for the fact that, I mean, this case, like many cases, is just, it's not a straightforward case. There's a lot of nuance to the characters and the things that went on. That's really interesting that you said you wanted to uh, have people listen to this and and take take away certain things. I'm, I'm assuming you're speaking about people who are uh, citizen detectives or armchair sleuths or whatever you want to call them, or just true crime aficionados. Despite all the nuances and the uh, com- complexities of this case, do you think that the, this case is sort of a, a blueprint or a template for, for other cases that people can listen to the details of this and maybe apply them to uh, a case that they're looking into that they have a passion about? I think so. I mean, we're, we dive deep and we talk to a lot of experts who were either familiar with the case or not familiar with the case. But I mean, this is a real good case study of how a scene should be processed in this kind of case. And we, we do get into a lot of the forensic evidence. Um, I, I hope that, you know, that people listen to this and and know that we went the extra mile, that we we dug as hard as we could, you know, to to get as much facts as we could on this case and not just paint a picture for you. Tell us about this uh, this sleuth, Eli Washtock, who had been looking into the case. Yeah, that that was a surprise to us because when we when we signed up for this case, I mean, we were really just focused on the Michelle O'Connell case. And then we started looking into it. And then we found out that Eli Washtock was murdered. And that floored us because how weird is that? And so then we started looking into this guy, like, who is Eli Washtock? And we couldn't find anything on him. No social media presence, nothing. And I mean, John and I are really good at finding people. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of true crime podcasters are too. And Eli was virtually a ghost. I mean, he was nowhere to be found. And so that character kind of consumed us for a while, trying to figure out who was he, where was he from, what was he um, looking into in the Michelle O'Connell case? Was it just a hobby? But it actually turned out that it was way more than a hobby. I mean, this guy hired um, lawyers, forensic experts. He supposedly had, um, you know, people going after and following Jeremy Banks and possibly his family. I mean, he poured a lot of money and time into this case. And the more we were trying to find out about Eli, the more questions we had. And even today, we he's still a mystery to us. Right. That's that's so bizarre. Do, do you know how much money he spent or like was he wealthy or independently wealthy somehow? 
I don't know if we want to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have some <laughs> indication on all of those things. But yeah, uh, there are many things that are uh, quite ambigu- ambiguous to us going in going into this case. And, and I would say that kind of follow on what Javier was saying is that there are 24 hours in a day for every one of us. And I feel like if we're digging into somebody, we should be figuring out what were they doing all 24 hours of the day, like every day, like what was going on in their life. And when you can't get answers to those kinds of things, it's very perplexing because you know that they were doing something. And so that's one of the things with Eli is that we are trying to figure out what was he doing all the time? And yeah, how was he making money? Did he have a lot of money? Those are questions that we had at the beginning that we are going to answer uh, throughout the podcast. Eli's death was definitely ruled a murder, shot in the head in his condominium in St. Augustine. And this is somebody who had been, and I just want to sort of boil it down a little bit for anyone who's not sure who Eli is, because it is a little bit tough to find out who Eli is, because apparently he does identify as a male and a female. And um, the other name is Ellie, I believe, right? Yeah. So that that was another area that was very complicated for us because uh, the first thing that the police tell the public is that there's this person who's related to the Michelle O'Connell case. They don't release his name. And all they say is that he identifies as both a male and a female. And that right off the top through um, John and I, you know, like it was a curveball and we just didn't know where to go with that because it actually made it even more confusing. And we're going to we're going to kind of answer that question in the show. Ah, gotcha. So so no, uh, no, no hot takes here. Right. <laughs> well, just just note that we do have some resolutions to that. But but isn't it interesting that this this other sheriff's department because it was it, both Eli and Michelle lived in St. Augustine, Florida, but because the sheriff's office, uh, St. John's County Sheriff's Office, had this history with the Michelle O'Connell case, they they kind of recused themselves from the case and handed it off to a neighboring, le- like a much smaller county that doesn't have as much experience looking at the homicides. They gave them the Eli Washtock case. Well, they isn't it funny that they mentioned his sexual identity but didn't mention his name they also said that um that it was a suspicious death but there's no harm to the community you know they they don't fear like that there's somebody out there you know so it they sent off a lot of mixed messages right off the bat even before they ever released his name okay so to read in between the lines a little bit are you saying that the um perception was such that they wanted people to maybe think this could have been a a hate crime because Eli identified as both a male and a female. And that's why they said that there's no immediate danger to anybody in the neighborhood. So, you know, you don't have to worry about this, this madman that's going around shooting people in, in this condominium complex. It it was an isolated hate crime. Is that something that maybe you think they, they were trying to, uh, push that perception forward? I think that uh, the reasoning why they released that is unclear, but I think that they absolutely did it for a reason. So I think that there's a lot that could be said as to to why. I mean, there's a lot of theories, but I believe that Putnam County released that information with a specific goal in mind. Uh, That's one possibility, but there are several others that could have been reasons why they released that. 
But I mean, just to kind of put a close to this topic, it, his sexual identity has nothing to do with why he was murdered. You know, right. and it was just it, it, like John said, we don't know why they put that out there, but they put that out there. But it's not really relevant to who he is and what he was doing on the case. Well, I could see that making it a little more difficult for you to search this uh, this person and, and find some information on them if uh, if, you know, he or she has different uh, names. Yeah. And just to uh, kind of clarify, we, we refer to Eli as a he. And the reason why is because everyone who he interacted with that we've spoken to, that's how he presented them, himself to them. So okay. we don't want to make any assumptions about what he called himself. Like, I don't want to attach any pronouns that he didn't attach to himself, you know? So until sure. we learn otherwise, that's kind of the decision that John and I went with. It's like how if Eli were around right now and he was talking to the same people that we were talking to that he talked to shortly before his death, why would we call him something else, you know? That's kind of where our heads were. Yeah, exactly. And um, Eli was murdered in 2019, in January of 2019. So this is a story that began back about a decade ago and then has really um, sort of added to the story just recently. And now you guys are kind of trying to pick up the pieces on both of these these deaths, mysterious deaths. And so do you guys think they're connected? <laughs> Well, that was our that was a that was a lob. Yeah, a softball. Yeah, that was a lot of silence after that question. Well, I think that the that regardless, the fact that he was looking into Michelle's case and he was murdered means that they are connected on some level. Uh, but whether there's a direct connection between Michelle's uh, murder or suicide and his death, we don't know, and we will tackle that in the later episodes of this uh, series. But, you know, right off the bat in episode one, we tell the audience that the chances of these two cases being connected, you know, in, in that way, in the way that we're all thinking, I mean, that that's a Hollywood story, right? Like, what are the chances that that actually took place? But it's the conclusion that everybody kind of jumps to. Well, there is a Hollywood in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> At the other end of Florida, yeah. Florida's a very interesting state. <laughs> Oh, stop it. I'm from Florida, so I could say that. <laughs> well, uh, I was reading a couple of articles on this, and um, Michelle's mother, Patty, believed or or believed at one time that these two murders were connected, perhaps perpetrated by the same individual. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people close to this case that have very strong opinions as to who they think may have killed Eli. Uh, and we certainly take that into to account in this uh, podcast. Yeah, we, we've spoken to a lot of people who believe that there is no doubt in their mind that these things are connected. Right. And um, Michelle's mom, Patty, she met Eli. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, they they corresponded. Um, actually, one of the ways that we're... So Eli's no longer around, and he's, like we said, he's doesn't have a social media presence, so it's not like he wrote blogs and there's things that we could find out. So really... The way we were retracing his investigation, we started with Patty O'Connell and his correspondence with her, and we started looking at the emails, and he would email her every Friday. He would email her and give her a status update of what he was doing. He was very professional, very serious about this case, and that's where we started. And, and basically, if you want to look at criminal conduct as in, like from a wide angle, it's really John and I recreating Eli's investigation. 
because uh, interestingly enough, he he kept all his evidence in a in this white binder in a three ring binder. Well, that binder is gone now, and supposedly Eli had some really juicy information that he was digging up, but it's gone. It's now in the possessions of the authorities, so we can't get that. It's an active investigation. But the whole process of the show is us trying to rebuild that binder. It's incredibly fascinating. I just have one more question about Eli. Did did Eli look into any other cases aside from this one? Not that we know of. This is the only case that you know of that he looked into and then he's found shot to death in the head. Correct. <laughs> it's It's very bizarre and... No one he that we interviewed knew that he was, uh, you know, like fam- friends and family and stuff. They they had no idea he was looking into this case. Yeah. Um, do you know what kind of gun uh, killed Eli? We do not know the specifics of that. Hmm. Okay. Um, by chance, did Michelle have any uh, gun training? Uh, not that we're aware of. Yeah. And, you know, when uh, one of the things about the the whole gun and Michelle is that one of the things that people say, and we don't really talk about this much in the show, but for a police, uh, you know, a police belt, like to in, in order for her to remove the gun from the police belt, it you have to know what you're doing. And there's this whole idea of like, well, could she have even known how to remove the gun from the belt? But then there's also reports that the belt was broken, um, but none, no training that we know of. Okay. In their home, did did they have a lot of guns that were under lock and key? Were there a lot of guns presents, present? Were there were they like gun aficionados or was he? Um, I think my understanding, I, there may have been other guns in the house, but that's the only one that has come into this case. The one that shot Michelle. Yeah, and and um, according to some friends, you know, Jeremy and and they lived. Their house was very untidy, right? So there was like clothes everywhere and stuff every everywhere. And apparently, Jeremy would come home and just take his holster out and just th- toss it on the bed or whatever. And there was a little kid in the house, Michelle's daughter, but apparently they just kept the gun out. You know? Oh, they just. How old was her daughter? At the time, she was four, and they just kept the gun out. I mean, that's what friends tell us. Okay. And were they planning on having other children? Well, actually, so Michelle's daughter was not Jeremy's daughter. Um, that right. was from a previous relationship. And according to Patty O'Connell, um, no, they had no plans on having children. They had no plans on getting married. Um, it was pretty clear that Michelle wanted out of this relationship. I think that this was something that... Uh probably like most complicated relationships was something that ebbed and flowed for quite a while. Um, but I think in the, up in the weeks prior to her death, she certainly had mentioned it to uh, several people, but I think that this is something that had come up and she probably mentioned it and then everything's great. And then everything's bad again. And then everything's great. So this was not a uh, consistent path that she was on. Uh, I think that she had talked of leaving many times prior to this. Was there any indication that she might have been having an affair or talking to another man about uh, moving on maybe separately uh, from, you know, from having an affair? You know what I mean? Was there any communication with a male friend that she wanted to move on from Jeremy? Uh, not not in that way, no. I feel like we're getting grilled, John. <laughs> <laughs> you are. 
You sure are. What about uh, Patty O'Connell? What was her opinion on Jeremy? Because she actually worked with him in the same office at times, I guess. Yeah, it was not favorable. Yeah, she 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 does not like Jeremy. She makes that pretty clear. I, I think at the beginning, maybe she liked him. We, we get into that. We have an episode where we kind of talk about how they got together. But no, she's not a fan of him. And, and of course, it was very awkward for her because the, um, you know, she had to go back to work after Michelle died. And she works with the same people who are investigating her daughter's death. And, and occasionally she would run into Jeremy, you know, who, who she feels uh, murdered her daughter. And that was a really, really trying time for her. But she no longer works for the sheriff's office. Patty no longer works for the sheriff's office. No. But but the whole family, by the way, just, just to kind of give you context. So Michelle's brother, Scott O'Connell, he was a deputy sheriff. He was the one that introduced Michelle to Jeremy. And, you know, they... They work there. So it, it it's more than just Michelle was dating a deputy and Michelle's mom was working there. Her brother worked there as well. Um, so they had deep ties to that sheriff's office. Wow, that's wild. Oh, deep ties. So you're saying that there's a, a conspiracy here. No, I'm not saying that. that that's I thought very... I heard you say conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> conspiracy conduct. All right. You heard it here first. <laughs> the, the URL was taken, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. We really appreciate you guys coming on and uh, chatting with us about this case and about your new show. It's fantastic, and uh, hope everyone out there checks it out. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.